If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And this morning we're going to be in verses 13 through 16. John chapter 3, we'll start in verse 13. Anyone who knows me knows I love museums. Last summer, I got to go to the National Museum of Mexico, and twice I've been to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. Well, one of the most famous artists of all time was Michelangelo, and every year millions and millions of people will flock to museums around the world to see some of his works of art. Uh, For example, people will go uh, great distances to see the David sculpture. And people will travel great distances to see the Sistine Chapel as well. One thing you may not know about Michelangelo is that he was influenced by some of the Reformation preachers at the very least. We know that he heard the gospel, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And at some point it would appear that he came to understand that he needed to be saved. And the final sculpture that he made in his latter years was a sculpture of Nicodemus and what makes this sculpture unique amidst all of his different works of art. When Michelangelo made this sculpture, the face that he carved into the stone was his own. You see, Michelangelo understood that when Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again, he was not only talking to Nicodemus, he was talking to Michelangelo, and he was talking to you, and he was talking to me. Last week, we looked at that statement in the first part of this chapter, and I said that it may be the most important statement ever uttered by man. We saw the necessity of the new birth. Jesus said, you must be born again. We saw the nature of the new birth. It is a spiritual birth that the Spirit of God produces in us. We saw the possibility of the new birth. Nicodemus had not yet experienced the new birth because he did not receive Jesus' testimony. He did not believe in Jesus' name. Well, this morning we're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to see what God did to make this new birth possible. God made a way for this to become a reality for every single one of us. And when we come to verse 13, understand that this is no longer Jesus talking to Nicodemus. In verse 13, what we have is John speaking to us about that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, which just took place. This is John adding his commentary to that so that we will all know how we can be born again. And by the way, let me point out before we dig into this text, anybody who really understands these verses, anyone who gets a grasp on this passage will be able to share the gospel with anyone. And there are two things in these verses I want you to notice. I want you to see, first of all, the solution God required. The solution God required. 
Nicodemus learned that even he, with all of his religious and moral credentials, even he needed to be born again because even he was a sinner separated from God. That is the fundamental problem in the world that we all have to face. And here is God's solution to that problem in verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. God's solution to this problem was to send Jesus from heaven to earth. And remember, when John says that no one has ascended but he who came down, that's because John was there. And he remembers personally watching Jesus as he ascended back to heaven. And what he is saying in verse 13 is, no one else did this. No one else was the Son of God. No one else fulfilled prophecy the way Jesus did. No one else lived the perfect, sinless, miraculous life that he did. No one else died and rose again by his own power like Jesus did. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now we'll look at that 15th verse in a moment when it's repeated in verse 16. But looking at that 14th verse, if this sounds at all familiar, it's because John is quoting a familiar Old Testament story from the book of Numbers chapter 21. During that time, when Israel was wandering for 40 years through the wilderness, they did something that they had done before, but it's like this time they were taking it to a whole new level. They complained against Moses. They complained against God, but really it was rebellion. And as a result, the Bible says that serpents bit the people. Some of them died. It got to the point where the people were so desperate. They're in the desert. They got no hospital to go to. They have no doctors to visit. They have no antidote to take. And so finally, they went to Moses and they pleaded with him and they begged him and they said, please pray to God for us for some kind of solution. Well, this is what God told Moses to do. In Numbers 21, verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Just imagine a woman who has been bitten by one of these snakes and Several of her loved ones have died. She is certain that she is going to die. She has all of the symptoms. But then as she's lying in her bed, she hears this voice. It's getting louder and louder. She realizes it's a voice she recognizes. It's Moses' voice. And then she can finally make out what he's saying. He's saying, look and live. Look and live. And sure enough, she looks up out of that tent and she sees that bronze serpent that is glistening in the sun. And when she looks up at that serpent, all of a sudden, her pain is gone. And all of a sudden, her strength is restored and she is healed. 
She gets so excited, she goes to her friends and she begins to tell them, hey, have you heard the good news? You don't have to die. You can live. If you'll just look at that serpent Moses is lifting up, you will be saved. And I wonder if maybe some of them said to her, well, it's too late for me. I'm too sick and would not look. I wonder if some of them said to her, I'll go look at it tomorrow, but not today. I wonder if some of them said to her, you know, I don't believe in that bronze serpent stuff. But everyone who looked lived. No matter how sick they were, if they looked, they lived. It wasn't enough for them just to know about the serpent. No, they had to look. And if they looked, they lived. And so notice what John does in verse 14. He refers to that story back in Numbers 21 And there's a bit of a play on words. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up. You see, that was a phrase that they used back in those days when someone was crucified. You might hear someone say to somebody else, hey, Did you hear what happened to Sally? Or did you hear what happened to Ralph? He got lifted up. And the moment somebody said that, he or she was lifted up, everybody knew what they meant. That that was an expression that meant that they had been crucified. Because when someone was nailed to the cross, they took that cross and they literally lifted it up so that everybody could see. Well, what happened in the desert with Israel was a foreshadow of what was to come. It was a picture of the gospel. The Israelites had been bitten by serpents. But there's a sense here in which we have been bitten by sin. The very thing that had bitten them, the serpent, was lifted up. And likewise, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus became our sin, the thing that had bitten us, when he was lifted up on that cross. In Numbers 21, it was a bronze serpent. In the Bible, bronze repeatedly represents judgment. God judged our sin by placing it on Jesus when he died for us. The people looked at that bronze serpent and lived. We look to Jesus with the eyes of faith and we are saved. And it's not that it has to be perfect faith. I'm sure there were many of the Israelites who had been bitten and they were full of fears and doubts. But everyone who looked lived And everyone who looks to Jesus in faith will live forever. Now, for the Israelites, the solution to their little serpent problem, it was not to try to kill all the serpents. It was not to make enough medicine. It was not to pretend that the serpents weren't there. The solution to their problem was not to pass anti-serpent laws or to try to climb up the pole. The solution was to look by faith at the uplifted serpent. 
And for us, the solution to our sin problem is not to try to do better. It's not to try to work harder. It's not to try to heal ourselves. It's not by trying to keep the law. The solution is to look by faith to Jesus who was lifted up on the cross. Notice that John said the Son of Man must be lifted up. In other words, this had to happen. It was necessary for Jesus to be lifted up on the cross because God is holy, God is just. Because God is just, He must judge sin. The Apostle Paul, he described it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We were under the curse of having broken God's law. And so what happened? Everything that that curse brought into the world, everything that that curse brought about was placed upon Jesus. You ever told a lie? It was placed upon Jesus on the cross. You ever stolen anything? That theft was placed upon Jesus on the cross. This is the solution God requires. This is the only solution to the problem of sin. This is why Jesus came. And so we see the solution that God required, but then we come to that next verse that we love so much, and we see the redemption God provided. The redemption God provided. Verse 16 is probably the most famous verse and probably the most popular verse in all of the Bible. So uh, I'm just curious, how many of you here today would say, Pastor John 3.16 is my favorite verse? Anybody here that would be willing to say, yep, that's it. That is my favorite verse. I, I see uh, a lot of hands in the room. Well, if you do not know John 3.16 by heart, guess what? This sermon comes with some homework, okay? Um, your homework this week is to go home and memorize John 3.16. Every one of you need to know this verse and know it by heart. Whether or not you know it already, I want us to read it out loud together. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This verse has been called the gospel in a nutshell. It has been called a one-verse summary of the Bible, and it certainly is that. I want to talk about this verse by dividing it into four sections. First of all, when we look at John 3.16, we see God's love. We see God's love. For God so loved. It all begins with God. 1 John 4.19 says, We love Him because He first loved us. And notice God so loved, that word for love, you've probably heard me say many times, is that Greek word 
agape, and agape is not some warm, cuzzy, fuzzy feeling kind of love. No, agape is action. Agape is the deepest and the greatest kind of love. It's a love that is willing to die, if necessary, for the sake of its object. That's the kind of love we see in John 3.16. And who does God love? It says, the world. God so loved the world. A lot to be said about that word. The Greek word is cosmos. Now, in the Bible, when that word appears, it doesn't usually refer to the sun or the moon or stars or galaxies. That may be how we normally would use that word today, but that's not how it normally is used in the Bible. In the Bible, it refers to people, people of every nation, people of every language, people of every race, Red and yellow, black and white. And by the way, I have to mention here, I don't see any way possible without doing damage to the text for a person to read, for God so loved the world and make it say, for God loved some people in the world, or God loved only the elect. God so loved the world, yes, means God loves every person. I think Augustine said it best. He once said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. To that I would say amen. It may be hard to grasp. It may be hard to get our minds around that the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, the creator, the king of the universe, that he loves you and that he loves me. But I'm here today to tell you he does. For God so love the world means people, but let's go a little further. Let's go a little bit deeper. That word cosmos, when it appears in the Bible, it not only refers to people, but it refers specifically to people in their sinful condition. It refers to the world that is in opposition to God. And let me tell you why that is so important to understand this verse. There are a lot of people, when they hear someone say, God loves you, you know how they respond? They say, well, of course he does. I'm awesome. Why wouldn't he love me? That is not what John means when he says, for God so loved the world. God so loved the world means that God loved this sinful world. God loved this rebellious world. God loves this evil world. God loves the world that is against him, that despises him, that fights against him at every moment. God so loved the world means that God loves us not because of us, but in spite of us. God so loved the world means that God's love is not based on who we are it is based on who God is. And because that is true, that means there is nothing any of us can ever do that would make God love us anymore, and there's nothing we could do that would cause God to love us any less. I think some of us have heard 
and read and quoted John 3.16 so much that we've forgotten how scandalous this verse was when John first wrote it. Oh, yes, John 3.16 was a scandal because in the first century, they had many false gods and they had many idols that the people served, but none of them were ever said to love their worshipers. None of them were ever said to love their enemies. It was never said of any of those gods that they would be willing to sacrifice or die for us. This concept of unconditional love, the unconditional love of God, understand this is a distinctly biblical Doctrine. Where does it come from? It comes from the Bible. Try look for it somewhere else. You're going to have a hard time. And I will give you an example. If you read the Quran, it speaks of the love of Allah, but you have to earn it. If you read the Quran, Allah says, if you do this or if you do that, I will love you. Allah says, if you obey me, I will love you. Allah says, if you love me first, I will love you back. Do you understand how contrary and how different that is from this description of God's love that we have in the Bible? In the Bible, God loved us first for God so loved the world means he loved you and he loved me when we were at our worst this is how God demonstrated his love for us, in that we were sinners. Christ died for us. We see God's love. God so loved the world. We also see God's gift. For God so loved the world that he gave. That's what love does. It gives, and it gives, and it gives some more. It sacrifices. It's willing to pay the highest price. What was God willing to give for you and for me? His only begotten son. His only begotten son. Only, only one time in all of human history did the word become flesh and dwell among us. Only one person who could refer to God as not just his heavenly father, but as his earthly father as well. He was God's only begotten son, and yet God gave him for you and for me. When John says God gave his only begotten son, don't forget the context. Jesus being lifted up on the cross, God gave his only begotten son means that God gave him to die. I'm the father of four children. I'm going to be honest with you. I would never consider giving up one of my children to not only die, but to die a crucifixion death in order to pay for a crime that you committed. I wouldn't do that. I couldn't do that. Oh, I love you so much, but not that much. That's exactly what God did for us. That's why 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Every gift God gives us, starting with Jesus, is indescribable. Words cannot describe it. 
No other gift costs so much. No other gift lasts so long. No other gift is so valuable, so important, so powerful. We see God's love. God so loved the world. We see God's gift that he gave his only begotten son. And we see God's offer. This is God's offer to all mankind that whoever believes in him should not perish. Whoever believes in him. Every one of those words is so important. It's so full of meaning. I said a number of weeks ago that that word believe that we see again and again in the Gospel of John, it is simply the verb form of the word faith. Whoever faiths him. It's bad grammar in English, but that's exactly what it says in the Greek. In other words, whoever would place their faith in him, not whoever deserves it, not whoever earns it, not whoever pays him back. No, whosoever believes. Just believe. Believe that he died for you. Believe that he rose again. This isn't some kind of generic faith. John isn't saying, well, as long as you believe in something, as long as you believe in someone, as long as you believe in anything, then you'll be all right. No, it says, whosoever believes in him. Your faith must have an object, and that object must be Jesus. And this is God's offer, and it is made to whoever. There was a philosopher back in the second century. His name was Celsus, and this philosopher, he was very critical of Christianity. He didn't like Christianity, but there was something else he didn't like. There was a word that he kept hearing these Christians using. And every time he heard them use that word, man, it drove him crazy. It drove him up the wall. And he wrote about it. He complained about it. And the word that Christians were using that drove this philosopher so mad was the word whosoever. And he pointed out that all the other religions also used the word whosoever in their writings. They said, whosoever has pure hands, whosoever has a wise tongue, whosoever has lived well, whosoever is righteous, they are invited. They can come. But then Celsus noted that those Christians those pesky Christians, they use the word differently. And I want you to listen to his complaint. He said, this is how the Christians are using the word whosoever. When they say it, they say, whosoever is a sinner, whosoever is unwise, whosoever is a child, whosoever is a wretch, whosoever is dishonest, a thief, a burglar, a poisoner, a sacrilegious fellow, and a grave robber. And he ends with this complaint. Why on earth this preference for sinners? I'm so glad God has a preference for sinners. Aren't you? You know why God has a preference for sinners? Because we are all sinners that is why. And because we're all sinners, whosoever, it means no one is so bad they cannot be saved. It means no one is so good that they don't need to be saved. I'm so glad the Bible says whosoever. You think about all of those whosoever verses that are scattered throughout the Bible. 
Matthew 16, Jesus said, Whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. And in John 4, he said, Whosoever drinks the water I give will never thirst again. And in John 11, he said, Whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And in Acts 2, Peter said, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever means anybody who is willing, anyone who will come. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what is in your past. Whosoever believes in him, that is God's offer to the world today. We also see God's promise. God's promise. Notice The end of the verse, it says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Should not perish, it says, because the not perishing is contingent upon believing. Now, that is why some translations will also translate this well by saying, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, this promise that God is giving to us here, it is kind of like a coin with two sides. When John says that whosoever believes in him will not perish, that does mean that the one who does not believe will. And perish does not refer to physical death. Perish here means spiritual death. It means eternal separation from God in hell. And without Christ, that is all someone has to look forward to. But the other side of that coin, whosoever does believe but will not perish but have everlasting life, not just life, everlasting life. John verse 15 uses the same Greek word when it says eternal life, everlasting life, eternal life. This refers to two things. It refers to the duration of life. It means life that never ends. It means when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Everlasting life, eternal life, it refers to duration, but it also refers to the quality of life. Quality. Jesus called it abundant life. It's a quality of life that is infinitely glorious. Life that is Bigger and better and greater than anything that we could ever imagine. And God promises that the one who believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. Notice it is the present tense. God doesn't say, if you believe, maybe one day in the future, then I will give you this eternal life. He doesn't say, here's my list of uh, of demands. If you spend your life working hard, doing your best, maybe then you'll have eternal life. Notice he says, this is something you have right now. Eternal life is a present possession for everyone who believes, for every born again child of God. And by the way, if God gives to us right here, right now, eternal life, how long does that last? For eternity. And if it lasts for eternity, that means you can never lose it. We look at this verse, we see God's love, God's gift, God's offer, God's promise. 25 words in John 3, 16. But oh, it says so much, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. A few minutes ago, we read that verse out loud together. Now, as we close this message, 
I want us to do it again, but this time we're going to do it a little bit differently. I don't know how many times I've stood at a funeral and quoted John 3.16, and probably every time I said, you can put your name in that verse as the object, and it is still just as true. So that's what I want us to do this morning. We're going to read this verse, put our names in it as a way of applying it to our lives. Now, I'm going to demonstrate doing it first so that you'll then know what you're going to do afterwards. If I were to put my name in this verse, it would sound like this. For God so loved Howard Hardin that he gave his only begotten son for Howard Hardin. That if Howard Hardin believes in him, Howard Hardin should not perish, but Howard Hardin will have everlasting life. I don't know about you, I like the sound of that. <laughs> now, it's your turn. You ready? We're going to read it, but when we get to those blanks, you're just going to say your name, okay? On your mark, get set, go. For God so loved that he gave his only begotten son for that if believes in him should not perish but will have everlasting life. Amen and amen and amen. And so here's the question before I pray. Will you respond to God's love? Receiving that gift. Taking God up on his offer by believing God's promise that he will save whosoever believes in him. Would you join me as we pray right now? Our Lord and our God, these words are so simple and so deep all at the same time. Wow. Thank you. And oh, Lord, how sweet it is to our ears when we hear that verse and our name is in it to think that this is for us. Thank you, oh God, for loving us in this way. That you are willing to give your only begotten Son. That by believing in Him, we need not perish. We will have everlasting life. Father, if there's any here today who needs to respond to this message by making it personal, by putting their name in that verse, not by just reading words on a screen, but by making the most important decision of their lives, by accepting this gift 
believing in Jesus, placing their faith in Him, His death, His burial, His resurrection, trusting in Him alone for their salvation. If there's anyone, even one person, God, here today who knows right now they need to make this personal. And they need for their name to be in that verse. God, I pray right now that you'd knock on the door of their heart, show them once again how much they really do need a Savior that just like Nicodemus who represented the best of us, even they need to be born again. And one day, God, we will stand before you and we will give an account for how we responded and what we did with Jesus. So, Father, we ask you to move in these next few moments. And, Father, would you help all of us here today to take what we've read and take what we've learned and not just keep this to ourselves. There's a world all around us that desperately needs to hear all of this, especially John 3, 16. And so go before us. Give us a holy boldness. Give us a new burden for those people who are around us and our sphere of influence who do not know Christ that we would take this message with us wherever we go. God, have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, before we go, I have to ask you the question I asked at 8 o'clock and I asked it again at 9.30. Is there anybody here today that would say that you need to make this personal? You need to put your name in that verse not by just reading the words like we did a moment ago. Well, that's a good thing to do. But you need to make it personal by saying, yes, I will accept this gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. I receive him. I'm placing my faith in him right now. I'm going to stop trusting in anyone or anything else to save me. He's the one who died for me. He's the one who rose again. And so I'm going to put my faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Anybody here today that would just raise their hand and say, I need to take that step this morning so I can know, so that I can be praying for you. Anybody by raising a hand to say, Pastor, that's me. Pray for me. I need to take that step. Anybody needs to take that step this morning? Anybody else? Amen. If you're watching online, we want to hear from you as well. Please let us know. There's that number on the screen. If you text that number, you're going to get a link. If you click on that link, you can let us know 